0: Hey everybody, this is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast, part of the Demcast Podcast Network. I'm your host, Stefan Cox. Today, the road to a Democratic Senate runs through the state of South Carolina. Senator Lindsey Graham has held the seat since 2004, but DNC Associate Chair Jamie Harrison is looking to end that streak. He's also looking to bring hope and structural change to a state that has traditionally been seen as deep red, but is beginning to show signs that that's shifting.
1: Barack Obama only lost the state by 150,000 votes in 2008. And we have right now in the state of South Carolina, 400,000 unregistered black voters. If we can get black voters registered and turn out here in South Carolina, we can win some elections in the state. And that's what we're working on right now.
0: That is all ahead. So stay with us. Jamie Harrison is a longtime Democratic operative and current associate chair of the DNC, and he is running for Senate in South Carolina, where he is looking to unseat longtime Senator Lindsey Graham. And we are so excited to have him with us. Jamie Harrison, it is such a pleasure. Welcome.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to be on with you.
0: You know, I will just start by asking you, because these are just unprecedented, challenging times. Uh, how are you doing? How are, how are you and yours doing?
1: You know, my family is doing really well right now. We are, you know, as well as anybody could possibly do. uh, You know, we've been in the house now for a few weeks. And so uh, I think like everybody would go a little stir crazy and Mm -hmm. we have to go outside and just take a break. But we we are trying to keep up our spirits. My wife and I have two boys at home, one five-year-old and the other is one. And uh, we're just trying to create a new normal for them, at least for the short term, so that they don't stress out about the current situation.
0: Yeah, I've heard from a lot of my friends who have young ones at home that they're also having to be teachers on top of everything else that they're having to do. So that adds an extra challenge, I would imagine.
1: Oh, it's tough. I mean, (laughs) uh, our our five-year-old is in kindergarten. And so you you would think that uh, kindergarten's work wouldn't be that complex, but there's so much of it. And so uh, even this afternoon, we had a uh, and again, the teachers and the schools have been trying a really good job of, of creating some normalcy for the kids. So we did a Zoom lunch for him with a few of his classmates um, because you know they get so used to going out to the playground right. and playing, and uh, and he was just so excited just to get that opportunity in the, in the moment to to share the latest toy that he has yeah. or or show something off. So. Uh, We're just trying to do as much of those things as we possibly can just to keep his spirits up.
0: Well, you sound like a great dad, and I'm sure that that need to keep his spirits up is probably resonating with a number uh, of listeners right now. I want to get your take on uh, the federal response and and also the response at the South Carolina level to coronavirus and I, I'd like to start with Senator Graham's handling of the coronavirus pandemic. What has been your take on the way that he has uh, handled and or mishandled uh, the response so far? You
1: know part of it is it, it, it's it's been a big disconnection you know um, Lindsay. Just seems totally disconnected from what normal South Carolinians need in a time like this. He's not holding the federal government to account uh, on the, the ter- terribly uh, slow production of tests. Uh, you know, it, we're told here in South Carolina there are about 85% of cases are undiagnosed here. It's because we are one of the worst states in the country mm-hmm. in terms of testing. Um, You know, he assured everybody that testing would be robust for South Carolina in March, and, and that just has not been been the case. Uh, he he seems unfazed that South Carolina has again uh, among the lowest tests per capita rate in the entire country. And add to the fact we saw what he did when Congress had its opportunity in the spotlight to really address the situation, bring calm. Uh, to the American people and the assurance that, that financially and, and based on their health, that things are going to be okay. It's going to be tough, but things will be okay. You know, Lindy, in that very last day, stood in, in front of this, the coronavirus, the CARES Act, and, and said, well, you know, we can't have this because unemployed folks may make $600 more. Uh, and it just, it wasn't rational. And then he threw nurses and nurses assistants, people who are on the front lines right now of this crisis, he threw them under the bus and said that they were going to stop their jobs. They're going to stop the jobs that they have committed an oath, uh, to protect health and lives, uh, that they were going to stop that just so that they can make $600 more, uh, for unemployment. It was just, it was unhinged. Uh, And he was just playing his old Washington political games when people are just desperate for for leadership that will bring some calm and some common sense to the situation right now.
0: Well, you recently published a five point plan on what your response would be to the pandemic. So how do you think the, the federal government should be handling this?
1: Well, you know, first and foremost, we need to we need to get somebody who uh, a czar to oversee this, and I'm not talking about Jared Kushner. Uh, (laughs) We need, uh, I mean, it's uh, that's ridiculous. We need someone. uh, You know, when you think about some of these generals who, in the past, have taken on you know uh, efforts, uh, hurricanes, and some of these other things, people who understand how you fight against. Uh, you know, a, nat- a natural disaster or, or, or take a disaster and turn it into something. So uh, we need someone like that to oversee a response effort who can coordinate uh, with all of the governors to make sure that this is a coordinated effort across all 50 states and not just you know, 50 different approaches to tackle this one major, major issue. We need to have mass testing right now. Uh, in order to track the spread of the virus, we need accurate and rapid mass testing. And we, and we have to do it now. We can't have these sporadic you know, states like South Carolina that are barely testing and states like New York that are doing a lot of testing. Uh, everybody needs to have some sense that we know who, who the folks who are inflicted with this virus, we can contain that. Uh, to make sure that, that uh, you know, we run the, the, the gamut and the periods to allow this thing to run its course. Uh, the relief checks, I'm happy to see that they're finally coming out. Uh, you know, I was very, very discouraged, like so many others, to hear that it would be months. But what I am discouraged is that, and you know, they have delayed this just so that you know folks can sign these checks. We need these checks directly into the hands of the American people. We don't have time for the pomp and the circumstances. Uh, the Small Business Administration loans. Uh, I have heard. I've talked to so many small businesses over the past few few days, and many of them are still waiting to hear whether or not they have qualified to receive some of the funding from. Uh, the, the Paycheck Protection Program. Uh, we need to figure out where that bottleneck is, and we need to eliminate that so that those funds can flow to the small businesses that so desperately need them. Uh, and then the last but not least is the Defense Production Act. I don't understand why we've been dragging our feet as it relates to this. We need to make sure that all the PPP, the PPEs uh, that need to go to our healthcare professionals but we also need to make sure that the manufacturers, I, I had a small manufacturer uh, the other day called me saying that they're looking for gloves and, and masks for, for the workers in their companies. We need to make sure that they have the proper materials that they need in order uh, to move forward. And that means the, the federal government, the, the White House, has to take over some of these industries to make sure that, uh, that our front line of defense of this, of this illness, of this virus, are taken care of and are protected.
0: And a lot of what you're talking about here is coordination. You mentioned the appointment of a COVID-19 czar. And I'll just ask you to speculate. Why do you think Trump has been resistant to coordination at the federal level on this?
1: You know, I'm not, I'm really not sure. You know, part of this is I'm sure that, you know, there's a lot of distrust that you know, uh, someone else would probably steal the spotlight. I, I'm not sure. But so this is where Congress has to step in. This is when you need uh, your senior senators, when you need uh, you know, members in the House of Representatives to step in with one unified, clear voice and go to the president and says, and say, this is what needs to happen for our people. Uh, you know, I, I cringe when I saw Jerry Kushner stand up to say that the the, the federal stockpile was our stockpile. Well, who is our? Uh, you know, we're the fifty states of the United States that make up this, uh, our government. Uh, the federal government is there in order to service our state. and so that our it is the fifty federal. I mean, the fifty states, uh, and I, I just didn't understand what this this. This false separation is that we're in this thing together. Um, you know, the federal government and the state governments need to be working together. There should be no space in between them. But it's so sad to see that you've got different states who are bidding against each other in the private sector to just get the materials that they need to protect their people. That should not be the case. We should have a, a very cohesive, Um, unified response to this. And that's why we need a COVID-19 doc.
0: Because the states are on their own right now, largely, I'm very curious to hear about how the pandemic is impacting South Carolina in particular, and especially the healthcare infrastructures, because we know that they've been uh, hit very, very hard across the country. How is South Carolina being affected on that front?
1: Well, you know, I mean, again, we currently know of 3,500 cases. Um, and those cases are disproportionately impacting the African American community here in South Carolina. I think 41% of the positive cases are African American, uh, and 56% of the deaths so far in South Carolina are, have been African American and the African American population in South Carolina is only about 20% of the population. Mm. Um, and what we are seeing is uh, there's a really big impact in some of our rural communities. And these are the areas that were already underserved as it relates to to healthcare and healthcare uh, services in the state. We've had four rural hospitals to close in South Carolina over the past few years. So that means in some of our rural areas, there are less hospital beds, less healthcare services. Uh, And so you have people who, whereas it used to be it takes them five or ten minutes to get to the nearest hospital, now it takes them 25, 35, 45 minutes to to get to the nearest hospital. So you probably have folks who have symptoms but aren't close, don't have the transportation, don't have the means to get to a hospital, uh, and therefore continuously spreading this virus uh, amongst folks in their communities. Um, and so this, these disparities uh, that, we, that existed before the virus are just exacerbating the situation and they're making it worse. Uh, and so, uh, you know, we're a state where we have not had Medicaid expansion under the Affordable Care Act because Republicans like Lindsey Graham have stood in the door and stood, in, stood uh, against that. Um, and so it, it's a really, really big problem for us right now. Um, and I'm just hoping and praying uh, that we can do past this. And we're trying to do everything we possibly can through our campaign and coordinating with our officials like Jim Clyburn and, and Joe Cunningham to make sure that the needed services are coming to those in South Carolina, despite the lack of really solid leadership from the governor's office or from our U.S. senators.
0: I'm, I'm wondering, given everything you're saying here, on the ground, if you if you have any indication that this crisis might be changing attitudes about the need for universal health care, do you see any evidence of that?
1: You know, I think folks now are seeing that health care is a necessity and uh, it, it should not be optional. This is something that everybody in this country needs, because in these times of crisis, you know, you need to have some assurance. And something to, to fall back on, and, and so many families right now don't have that. And given that the massive number of layoffs that we're seeing here in, in the country, we're also seeing that a lot of folks are losing their health care as a result uh, as well. And so there needs to be some type of safety net set up so that in, in crises like this, folks still understand that, that they can provide for themselves, their families, and the other folks in their communities.
0: There is likely going to be a fourth stimulus bill in May. Uh, You've talked about some of the things that I I think you'd you'd like to see. Uh, One thing I want to ask you about in particular is Democrats push to make vote by mail part of any package. There is a concern, of course, that a second coronavirus outbreak could make in-person voting dangerous, much like we saw uh, recently in Wisconsin. How hard do you feel Democrats should push on the vote by mail issue?
1: Well, one, I, I think that even before you get to the vote by mail, it's about securing the Postal Service. I mean, when you right. think about that, the president does not want to submit uh, uh, to, to help out the Postal Service in this time. Yeah, the Postal Service
0: is failing right now. They may not make it through summer by some uh, estimates.
1: That's exactly right. And we know that all businesses right now are suffering. And so instead of, you know, uh, just giving billions of dollars to corporations, when the postal service is so crucial and critical to not only just individuals in this country, but also to businesses in, in this country, think about the businesses that rely upon mail uh, to mail their products, uh, and, and and the astronomical increases in costs to do. Uh, you know, I mean, we use the internet now so much for so so many things. Think about how costs will increase to do business virtually uh if there is no postal service think about voting and if, if this virus is still rampant across the country and that now everybody's forced to go to a polling place instead of being able to use vote by mail right. uh this is what this is a boneheaded uh, uh uh decision and it's not just you know in the white house you're hearing some members of congress who are also not willing to save the Postal Service at this moment. And this is just not a smart tactic to go down. Uh, I mean, it could have ramifications and ripples all across our economy. And as it relates to vote by mail, it is a no brainer. When we think about our polling places across this country, many of the people who work in the polling places are retirees, so many of them are well, uh, are seniors, who may have pre-existing conditions, may have things that will uh, uh, make them extremely vulnerable to this virus. Uh, so who's going to work at those polling precincts? Right. Uh, you know, we're going to have situations that like we saw in Milwaukee where they consolidate down you know, over a hundred and some odd precincts to five precincts. That's a form of voter suppression. We can't. We can't be for that. We can't have that. And so vote by mail. And I know you all have this in, in Washington state and you, you really are ahead of the curve for the rest of the nation. We should look at how you do your voting as a way, uh, as a model for the rest of us in this country. Um, but we got to do better and we should do better. And we have to demand better of our members of Congress and the White House as it relates to this. Nobody should have to risk their lives to, in order to vote. That should not have to be. Uh, A number of people risked their lives in order to get the vote. And and that was a sad chapter in the history of this nation. That should not ever have to happen again. And we have some leaders right now who are wanting to risk the lives of people uh, just so that they can try to suppress the vote. And that's sad.
0: Yeah, it's unconscionable. I I couldn't agree more. Uh, You know, you you mentioned voter suppression, and that uh, leads to a listener question. Kevin Leha asks, uh, South Carolina's long history of voter suppression and dirty tricks have succeeded in disenfranchising Democratic voters, especially African-Americans. And so I'll just ask you, what steps are being taken to ensure a fair voting process in South Carolina?
1: Yeah, That's a great question. So, you know, one of the ways that South Carolina is a little different than our sister states, where we've seen these massive voter purges, uh, you know, states like Georgia and North Carolina and Florida, uh, we don't have a secretary of state that oversees our elections here. We actually have an election commission made up of a number of commissioners, seven commissioners, and run by a full-time staffer. Um, And so we don't see massive voter purges. uh, You know, we don't have these 100,000 list of voters that are being purged. Where we see some of the suppressive e- efforts, it takes place on a county-by-county county level. That's when you'll have, you know, a precinct that is a majority African-American precinct in one uh, county, uh, where, where, and they're only given two machines and only one of them works. And the, the, the same, uh, a precinct that's similar, but this majority uh, uh, non-minority uh, has, you know, three working machines, right? It's those type of efforts that we have to be cognizant of and very conscious of, or, or the efforts to, to uh, prevent college students on the campuses of historically black colleges and universities, preventing those students from voting. Um, and so we are working with uh, the DNC. We're working with uh, Stacey Abrams group, uh, Fair Fight, yeah. uh, to, to make sure, and the state party, to make sure that uh, nobody uh, nobody – is uh, the vote is not suppressed here in South Carolina, and that everyone who wants to vote gets the opportunity to do so.
0: So you're running in what people think of traditionally as a very, very red state. And I have a few questions about that. But the first is, we've been hearing signs that things are starting to shift there a little bit. Are you seeing signs of that?
1: Oh, yeah. And South Carolina is not as red as most people like to make it out to be. Uh, You know, it's one of the things that I, I sort of, pull my hair out when I hear these these pundits talk about how red South Carolina really is. You know, uh, uh, normally elections, I I mean, Donald Trump got 54 percent of the vote here in 2016. Uh, Lindsey Graham has never gotten more than 55 percent of the vote since he's been running for the United States Senate. Uh, But, you know, there's really has never been the type of campaign that we are running in the state, at least not in the past 20 plus years. Um, where we will have the resources to do an on the ground, um, to, to be on, on, on TV. I mean, we are up right now on – we're running TV ads right now here in South Carolina in April. That is in, – in in my lifetime, I don't think any Democrat has had ads up this early in an election cycle. That's right. And that's because we've been able to, to have the resources to do that. And I need to be able to increase my name ID, uh, uh, push back against the, the, you know, the hatred, the, the hateful rhetoric we're going to hear from Lindsey Graham and, and his super PACs that are out there. Um, and so uh, we're not as red as most people like us, like to make us out to be. And Barack Obama only lost the state by, 150,000 votes in 2008. And we have right now in the state of South Carolina, 400,000 unregistered black voters. So if we can get black voters registered and turn out here in South Carolina, we can win some elections in the state. And that's what we're working on right now. And I I say this all the time to to Democrats because I don't know why we're the only ones that think this way. Republicans don't look at the the world in this manner and that, well, you're a red state. And so therefore we're not going to compete. I mean, you take a look at states like Massachusetts and Vermont and uh, Maryland. These are some of the blues of the blue states. But what do they have in common?
0: They have Republican, they have Republican governors. governors. That's right.
1: That's exactly right. And so, do you think you know Maryland is just as blue as you know South Carolina is is red, right? But do you think the Republicans sit back and say, "Well, <laughs> we're not going to run anybody in the in this race. We can't support anybody as a race because this is a blue state. We're going to lose." No, they don't do that. So, why do Democrats do that? We have shown that if we compete, if we get into the arena and compete, we can win even in red states. We have a governor of uh, North Carolina who's a Democrat, a governor of Kentucky. I was that going to Democratic.
0: say, yeah, by Andy Bashir. Yeah. And then also, you yeah. advise Senator yep. Doug Jones, who won in Alabama That's as exactly a Democrat. Right. Yeah.
1: As a Democrat. We got a governor in Kansas as a Democrat. You know, Kansas is redder than South Carolina, but they still have a governor there. Louisiana, redder than South Carolina, and they still have a governor there. So it's about finding the right candidates, making sure that you have the right type of campaign apparatus that's built up and then getting the vote turnout, and then you can win. But if you don't compete, if you just give up from the start, then of course it's going to remain a red state. We can change it, but we got to compete.
0: A lot of where that change can happen is through voter education and name recognition. Of course, Lindsey Graham has you, unfortunately, beat on that front. But a recent poll by Cornell Belcher shows that your numbers rise the more people know about you and they fall the more that they know about Graham's voting record. So obviously it's a key challenge. You mentioned that you're running TV ads. What else are you doing to educate voters?
1: Well, we, we, you know, sad to say, we had just launched uh, in the 1st of March a uh, Restoring Hope Tour, where we were going to visit all 46 counties in South Carolina uh, in, in sort of a bus tour type of uh, event between now and June. Uh, we had to pull down those events because of the coronavirus, and uh, we pulled down all of our public events. Yeah. And now what we're doing is uh, we're, we're leaning very heavily on... Uh, uh, a sort of digital outreach. Um, uh, we're, we're also leaning heavy on texting voters and calling voters because that's how we're going to connect with them. Now we're also in a state though where you know almost a third of the population or a third of the state does not have broadband access, and so that creates some difficulties. And that's part of the reason why we had to go up on TV so so much earlier. Um, um, because we needed to find a way to reach people even when they didn't have internet access. Uh, and so one of the easiest ways is to do it uh, uh, via TV to radio, but, uh, and those folks who do have access, uh, 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 broadband access is to also have a, a digital Facebook ads and, and, and you know Hulu and all the other things. Right. And so we're trying our very best to reach out to people. We're doing town halls. Um, Almost every week we have a town hall. We've uh, had town halls on the coronavirus, on the medical side, on the the mental and spiritual health side, and just recently with our small businesses. And we'll continue to have those type of dialogues with uh, with the folks here in South Carolina.
0: How much do you see your race in opposition to Graham or, say, Trump? And, and then also, how much do you highlight Graham's reversal uh, uh, on pretty much everything? Uh, he's, he's reversed himself on, oh, yeah. on virtually everything.
1: So, uh, you know, we talk about uh, and, and we we talk about Graham and we talk about his flip flops and we talk about uh, the, the, the sense of betrayal that I think so many folks in South Carolina feel you know when John McCain was alive you know I had and, and Lindsey Graham was a member of the Senate with McCain I had tremendous respect for for Graham I didn't agree with him much on policy but I had respect for him because I thought at the end of the day he would do what's in the best interest of, of the state and the nation yeah. and put uh put the country ahead of of politics but we see that's not the case with this guy he Plays Washington political games, and he only cares about himself and its own political relevance. We're fighting to bring hope back to South Carolina, to, to, to fight for the individuals in the state, their families, and their communities. Uh, and we are highlighting the hypocrisy of this guy that, you know, he, he doesn't do anything that does not have his self interest tied to it. Um, You know, we even are now tongue-in-cheek selling Lindsey Graham flip-flops on on our (laughs) webpage (laughs) Um, because he is is the Mr. Flip-Flop of the United States Senate. And it's time that we have somebody with some integrity and values who understands that this is not about Democrat versus Republican. It's about what's right versus wrong. And I'm always going to be on the side of right, which is the side of the people in this great state and the people of this great nation. Uh, Lindsey Graham has just been on the wrong side of things because he's only looking out for himself.
0: So I will close on the $64,000 question. Uh, a number of people have asked what we as out-of-staters can do to help your campaign, and what should we not do?
1: Yeah. Well, listen, one of the things, is an easy thing that everybody can do, you can go to jamieharrison.com or act Fool and make a contribution to our campaign. That would be really, really helpful. Yep. Uh, we need to have the resources to push back. But we're also doing a lot of, uh, of virtual phone banks and, and, and the like. And folks can go to our website, jamieharrison.com, and sign up to volunteer. Um, we also have a program called Harrison Helps, which is our program to service the needs of those folks in our community. And so if folks have resources that they think that they can bring to bear uh, that could be helpful to people uh, here in South Carolina, we would love their help. So just go to jamieharrison.com. You can sign up to help with Harrison Helps, to volunteer uh, on a phone bank or what have you. And eventually, once we can get back out of the house, uh, hopefully we can even get folks to come here and and help knock on a few doors as well.
0: Well, we want to do everything that we can uh, to help you out on the financial fronts, on the the volunteer front. Uh, Just know that we are rooting for you here in Washington State.
1: Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And I appreciate the opportunity to talk to so many uh, folks in Washington State.
0: Jamie Harrison, thank you for your time. Take care now. And that's it for today's show. Our website is indivisiblepodcast.org, and our email address is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative, Inc. and is part of the Demcast Podcast Network. Learn more about Demcast at demcastusa.com. My thanks again to Jamie Harrison. Special thanks to Kimberly Davis. And extra special thanks to Lori Caldwell. And as always, my thanks to you guys for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Bye.